BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Oh, how the mighty haven't fallen. The market refuses to be brought down by news that would have crushed us at almost any other time in history. Instead, it rallies to new highs. Dow gaining 256 points. S&P climbing 1%. NASDAQ advancing 0.49%. And while that may seem crazy, there's actually some very good explanations. Let's start with the negatives, though. First, there was this morning's tweet from the president meeting with Chuck and Nancy today, of course, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, about keeping government open and working. Problem is they want illegal immigrants flooding into our country unchecked, are weak on crime and want to substantially raise taxes. I don't see a deal, end quote. You know, at most times, a story like that about a potential government shutdown would have sent the stock market into a complete tailspin. <laughs> Government shutdowns are synonymous with lower stock prices. Sell, 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 Plus, even if the Democrats hadn't immediately canceled their meeting with the president, the political wrangling for something like this can take weeks, months, something that tends to weigh on the stock market. But not this stock market. Instead, we rallied on the news. Why? Who knows? Maybe it signals that the Republicans don't need Democratic votes to keep the government funded. Honestly, I have no idea. All I can tell you is that the stock market no longer seems to care about something that was incredibly important as recently as a couple of years ago and now believes that the GOP has the votes to keep the lights on without Democratic assistance, something that will likely result in a more pro-business agenda and a new tax code. Or how about North Korea? Normally, when they test a new missile, the market just gets slammed. But today we took it in stride. Sure, stocks swooned a bit when we heard about the launch. But then All they zoomed right back when we heard it fell harmlessly into the sea. Then there's interest rates. We expect that when rates go lower, the bank stocks will go down. That's practically been etched in stone. That's a true correlation. It signals that the banks may not get as much Fed rate hikes 
as they need, as many federal agencies as they need. Uh, remember, when the Fed tightens, the financials instantly become substantially more profitable, like they'll pay you more in your CD than what you're, you know, they make a lot more money on your money than you do. But today, rates went lower, and the bank stocks roared. It gets crazier. Wells Fargo got hit with still more bad news. Apparently, there were more bogus accounts than we thought, yet its stock rallied more than 3%. What does that say? Meanwhile, JP Morgan's stock is back above 100. These moves simply aren't supposed to happen. They're not correlating. Now, you could plead extenuating circumstances. Jerome Powell, President Trump's pick to run the Federal Reserve, told Congress that rates should be, uh, you know, higher starting with the December meeting. But is that really news? Uh, maybe for people who are obtuse. We also know that the administration is determined to neuter the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the agency that, do- the agency that did doggedly pursue Wells Fargo. Again, though, that's not enough to boost the bank stocks this much. Remember, they should have gone down today, not up. And the rally is destroying the orthodoxy that says this is an inconceivable situation. So much for that correlation. What else? Yesterday, an incredibly influential analyst, one of my favorites, Katie Huberty from Morgan Stanley, pulled the plug on nothing. On Western Digital, this is a maker of disk drives and flash memory with a stock that's been hot as a pistol. She argued the pricing for flash is peaking. Normally, that call would have resonated for days as investors assess where the weakness in the tech food chain might be. Might be, you don't get a downgrade from Uberty that's idle. But then last night, tech data, TECD. The giant supermarket of technology reported a simply fantastic number after disappointing the last time around. They talked about strong demand for smartphones, for notebooks, for software subscriptions, for security, for networking, for storage. That's basically everything that matters. And I think it blunted the second-day sell-off from Western Digital that we might have expected. After reading the conference call transcript, I felt particularly good about the run in Apple, which accounts for 16% of tech data sales. I thought Apple should have been up today. At the same time, I think it gives you the green light to buy stocks like Skyworks Solution and Broadcom, even though the latter is tied up in knots over the latest twist in their hostile attempt to acquire Qualcomm. That's not all. We know that there are too many restaurants in this country. Way too many. Come on, we even said it's common parlance. Yet this morning, Buffalo Wild Wings got a $157 share takeover bid from Arby's, which is owned by Roar Capital. And considering this stock was trading $100 near the end of October, I mean, that's a pretty amazing bid. That's not supposed to happen. So now we have the restaurant brands, uh, savvy owner of Burger King and Tim Horton, buying Popeyes, another chicken deal. Then we have this deal. We got Tyson Foods telling us that they have tremendous chicken demand. Haynes Celestial talked about the -the off-the-charts turkey demand, not just for the holidays. What does it mean? I think that all these food companies would tell you that the millennials have fallen in love with protein. The Atkins generation. And in particular, they want the protein from poultry. Regardless, real money is chasing restaurant stocks here, even when the underlying companies are being hurt by the stay-at-home movement and the takeout movement. The short sellers who thought they were shooting fish in a barrel here with these restaurant names have been caught with their pants down, and that's not a good look. All right. Okay. So let's, let's talk about something that is the elephant in the room that did well today. Let's talk about General Electric. The longer GE stays at 18, not lower, the more likely it is that the stock might finally be finding a bottom at 18 times next year's earnings. GE used to be known as a hedge fund in drag because the company did so much financial engineering, financial business versus actual manufacturing that its capital arm started dwarfing its industrial arm. 
After GE got in trouble during the Great Recession, the company decided to sell off its financial divisions and use the proceeds to move aggressively into oil and gas and oil and gas related businesses. The problem is they sold the financial businesses near the bottom and then made many of their oil, gas and power infrastructure acquisitions near the top. Although they did average down with the purchase of Baker Hughes. Well, that only just crushes you when you average down. Well, listen to me. This new GE, it's now heavily dependent on higher oil and gas prices. Think about it. Power construction, turbines need big utility orders. The utilities are hunkering down worldwide, many countries encouraging renewable resources. Baker Hughes badly needs higher oil and gas prices, obviously. Locomotives benefit from higher oil crude, uh, as crude has become a major cargo for the rails, and also because they... uh, You know, they're an alternative to uh, gas fuel uh, trucks, which are more expensive. Aerospace wins with higher oil because it gives airlines an incentive to shell out for the more more fuel efficient engines that GE is making. Sure, there are plenty of non-oil related businesses like healthcare, But the fact is GE has become far more of an oil than anyone could have imagined two years ago. And that means GE stock can bottom if oil continues its upward trend to 60 bucks. This thing's an oil company in drag. I swear that's all it really is. Now, not everything screams resiliency here. The relentless climb in Bitcoin could resonate negatively as soon as some point. It really feels like that doesn't feel like the run up in the dot com stocks back in up to March of 2000. But a collapse in the cryptocurrency shouldn't have much influence on the S&P 500. In fact, even in 2000, the collapse in the Nasdaq barely dinged the S&P. If you had a healthy basket of stocks diversified away from tech, you did just fine back then. Hey, by the way, if you've got all your assets tied up in Bitcoin, what are you watching the show for? Go put on something else. Hey, WrestleMania, I don't know, whatever. That's good, though. WWE it sells very well for Take-Two. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating that. This WWE sales are excellent for Take-Two, which is good stock. Anyway, the bottom line, if you're waiting for stocks to get obliterated by the bad news out of Washington or out of Korea or out of Main Street or out of retail or negative analyst calls and correlations that have produced so many past declines, I say don't hold your breath. The mighty still stand tall and show no signs of tumbling. That's how strong this market really is. We're going to Callen in Washington. Callen. Hey, Jim. First time caller and recent grad. So uh, thanks for having me on. Of course. I'm thrilled you're on. I'm thrilled we got younger people listening. All right. Yeah. So so one stock I'm really interested in owning as a millennial is uh, National Beverage Company. It's uh, F-I-Z-Z. Right. Um, specifically for its product in LaCroix. And uh, I've been researching and I noticed that the CEO owns uh, 75% of the shares. I'm curious what you think about this, because it's kind of a unique situation, but I do believe in the product. Well, what's happened, and Kyle, we should talk about this, it's a big short squeeze. The stock is up. It's like $5 billion company. I don't know if it should be there. But a lot of people are betting against the company, betting it's going to fall. I'm with you. You're a younger person. Why not take a chance that national beverage symbol fizz is the next big thing? I can't do that. If it isn't, I don't have the money. But you can because you can make it all back with your paycheck. Let's go to Richard in New York. Richard. Hey, Jim. How Long you doing? time viewer, first time caller. Okay. Thanks for all your insights and market wisdom. Oh, you're quite welcome. My, I was going to say my investment skills are improving thanks to you. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad to see we're making some progress. What's up? Uh, my stock is BZUN. It had good earnings, beat earnings, and is going nowhere. Yeah, you know, I thought the earnings were good, but the stock had gone up 10 points since we had them on. And the quarter was good, but it wasn't fabulous. And when you have that kind of run, Richard, you got to have a 
fabulous quarter to make it so that that stock goes higher. But I do think under 30, that stock is a buy, okay? Now, the mighty are just not falling. You can keep waiting for the declines like so many others because of all that negativity. I mean, doesn't it have to go down? But you have to admit it's not happening. Well, Man Bunny tonight, Thor the stock is looking better than Chris Hemsworth as the Marvel superhero. Not that I would care. After a huge move today, can the company keep climbing? I'm going to talk with the CEO. What a winner we've got on our hands there. And retailers weren't the only ones offering Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals. I'm going off the charts and eyeing Square. Yeah, I know. That's what you asked for on Twitter. Square after its sale yesterday. See if it's a bargain or a red flag. And it's Palo Alto Network's PANW. Is that back in the game? I'm going to sit down with the CEO after last week's earnings beat. See where the stock is headed. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Move over, Chris Hemsworth. There's only... Room for one Thor in this town, and that's Thor Industries, T-H-O. World's top maker of recreational vehicles and motorhomes. Here's a stock that's been a truly amazing performer, up over 36% year-to-date going into last night's earnings report. Then Thor announced its earnings, and once again, all I can say is that this company truly lived up to its name which is why the stock folded over 13% today. Yep, Thor posted a gigantic 59-cent earnings beat off a $1.84 basis, much higher than expected sales, up more than 30% year-over-year. Think about that. These were amazing numbers, even for a company with a history of blowing away the estimates. Meanwhile, Thor's margins continue to expand. Very impressive backlog. No wonder the stock took off today. Now, I've been recommending Thor for a long time. We just had the CEO on two months ago when the stock was nearly 30 points lower. So can it keep climbing? Let's check in with Bob Martin. He's the bankable president and CEO of Thor Industries. Learn more about the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Martin, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you very much, Jim. Happy to be back. All right, Bob, I've got to tell you, this quarter was so much better that I think all of your Q&A, which I know you guys do and you're tougher on yourself than anybody else, really can be kind of summed up by one thing. It's not cyclical. It's not connected to autos. It's about a change in lifestyle. And the change in lifestyle is driving the numbers. Definitely. That's a huge part of it. It's uh, a change of lifestyle. It's a, a younger demographic. It's uh, an industry that's really reaching this uh, younger buyer. You know, we're probably still ahead of the millennials, but Gen X, Gen Y, and we're starting to talk to the millennials. But it's this change of lifestyle that you can use an RV to not just go to a campground, but go to a kid's game for baseball, soccer, lacrosse, uh, you know, concerts. It's, it's a lifestyle piece. Yeah, I, I, you know, my daughter just came back from a two-and-a-half-month camping trip, and she was saying she spoke to a lot of people at RVs. She's still in the tent phase, which you said is gateway, gateway to RVs in your note. But she emphasized to me that a lot of the places she went to were preserved areas, like the national parks, where they won't let them build hotels. Or the hotels close in September. The only way to see America, she says, is through camping. And it's only 10 to $20 a night that that's a very big change for people. 
definitely. I mean, it, it, the Gateway is 10 campers, and it's uh, Campgrounds of America have a, a great statistic that they uh, use and they let us use, that there are 30 million tent campers out there, and those people are potentially our next buyers. We're, we're the next phase uh, to for the tent campers. that They hit about 30, and they get tired of sleeping on the ground, and they need something that they want a bed. They want air conditioning. They want something comfortable. And, yes, to see the national parks, there is no better way than, uh, you know, a tent, but, you know, an RV is a, a huge presence. When you go through the, the uh, national parks, I was in Yellowstone this summer, uh, hundreds, thousands of, of RVs as you're passing, you know, customers own RVs, Cruise Americas, uh, the rental units. So many different ways that they're using them. Well, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, my daughter comes home, she goes, oh, they're all glamping. Do you know glamping? <laughs> Glamping is simply a, a term that it, people go into RVs, and it's, it's been typically some of the bigger motorhomes that have a lot of just incredible amenities. Huge refrigerators, stereos, TVs. Uh, it's glamour camping. <laughs> but we've taken a lot of those features, and we've brought them down into more affordable units, smaller Class Cs, smaller travel trailers. So it, it feels like you're glamping, but it's, it's letting you know, the, the buyer take all of their comforts of home uh, that they that they want, you know, they're out hiking and, and fishing during the day, but at night they can come in and they can watch TV. They can catch up on their their emails through Wi-Fi. They're, they still want a lot of the creature comforts, and that's what an RV allows them to do. Another thing that I'm getting a line on is that this is a, there's a form of Airbnb. It's called hip camp. Hip camp. And what people do is they, uh, lots of people with land will rent them to people who have your RVs. And it'll be really cheap. It's a much cheaper way than a hotel that the millennials, in large part, are spending on your, on your, your vehicles. And then everything else is cheaper and just on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that is a new piece that's uh, coming into the industry. You know, people are they're, they're renting it could be, you know, a newer RV or an older RV, and it can be a very affordable way to uh, discover the RV lifestyle. And so I am seeing more of that, and we're, we're very open to it. I mean, that is another gateway to the lifestyle because once we feel that once people try RVing, they typically come back, uh, and then they like to do it for longer trips. And then they, the part of the beauty of having an RV is you have all of your own things. So they may rent a couple times, or they may you know, use a website to book one for a few nights, but if they like it, they may buy an RV because you have your own linens, you have all your own food, you have your, your own comfortable pillow, your own fan, just your things that are always in your RV. So many of the rental sites I, I think are great gateways for us to capture a customer in the years to come. But, but one last thing, uh, we have Winnebago on, I know that they're much, much smaller than Thor, but they did make an acquisition. Now you made that Jayco acquisition, which obviously in retrospect was one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen a business person do. But are you bumping into Winnebago with that acquisition or is there room for everybody? I, you know, for them, it, it's, it's a little bit different. I mean, Winnebago has always been more uh, motorized with their acquisition grand design. It, it definitely put them on, on pace with uh, travel trailers. But for us, we've always been a bigger travel trailer company, about 75% versus 25% motorized. So it's a very competitive industry. Uh, but for us, we, we definitely feel that our products are uh, taking market share. And with the, the numbers that we see in our backlog and our growth from uh, over the last year, 
uh, we have great confidence in the products that we're producing are really fitting the customers what they're looking for today. Fabulous. Well, Bob, I guess whether you're tailgating or whether you're glamping or just seeing the country, you are in the sweet spot. That's Bob Martin, president and CEO of Thor Industries. This stock's not done. I mean, this is a big, long trend. And people keep thinking it's cyclical. It's a trend, people, and it's going higher. Stay with Thor. Stay with Kramer. year right after Thanksgiving, we get to lose with discounts. Go to any retail or any e-commerce site. You'll find sale after sale after sale, first for Black Friday, then Cyber Monday, then on through the holidays. Some of them are terrific bargains. Others only look like bargains because of the markdowns. We understand this in the real world, and tonight I want to apply the same insight to the stock market. So let's talk about a company that I know you want to hear about and have undated my Twitter feed with. Let's talk about Square. SQ, the payment technology company with a very popular mobile credit card reader and a stock that got put on sale big time yesterday, losing 16% of its value thanks to a downgrade from a research firm, BTIG. Before that decline, Square was one of the hottest stocks around. The darn thing has tripled since the beginning of the year and it launched into the stratosphere two weeks ago when management announced that they'd be experimenting with a pilot program to let users trade Bitcoin. From the day that news broke, the 15th through Friday, Square sprinted from 40 to 49 virtually nonstop. As the CEO, Jack Dorsey, who's also the CEO of Twitter, said customers want a way to trade Bitcoin and he's going to give it to them. Then we got the downgrade yesterday and the stock tumbles to 41. And while Square rebounded back up to $42.55 today, it's still well off its highs. So are we looking at the bargain of a lifetime here? Or could Square be one of these? A falling knife. Sure don't want to be on the other side of that, do you? Nah. We're all going to die. Billy, great scene. Anyway, look, purely in terms of the fundamentals, I've been a fan of Square for a long time. I think it's a fabulous growth story. Nailed this one at 12, and I've been negative on the way down. But I also recognize the stock got overheated because people are desperate for any publicly traded way to play Bitcoin. We should have a duck come down for the roof, like with Groucho Marx, anytime anyone says Bitcoin, which is why the run earlier this month had very little to do with the fundamentals of Square. Square's pilot program just wasn't that big a deal. Even if it works out, it will take years before it makes a difference to the numbers. Something the CFO, Sarah Fryer, pretty much stated when she came on our show a couple of weeks ago. But like I said, this thing stopped being about the fundamentals two weeks ago. It's all about emotion. It's all about momentum. And that's why we got to go off the charts. You go off the charts when you don't know and something's really emotional. And we're going to Tim Collins. He's a brilliant technician and my colleague at RealMoney.com. Get a better read on Square's real trajectory. As far as Collins is concerned, you need to be very careful with this one now, even after today's rebound. When a stock that's speeding down the highway slams right into a retaining wall, you don't buy it hand over fist at the first sign of stabilization like we had today. That's too risky. First, you need to take a step back. Consider the carnage. So let's start with this weekly chart of Square showing a crucial series of Fibonacci levels. You remember Leonardo Fibonacci, the medieval godfather of mathematics who discovered a bunch of ratios that repeat over and over again in small shells, in pine cones, and bizarrely enough, in the stock market. You apply these ratios to a stock's past moves, and they give you a sense of where it's likely to change course in the future. Remember, this is predictive. And that's where Collins gets a series of red and green lines you see on this chart. 
The red lines represent retracements of the rally from Square's February lows. The green lines show retracements of the run since May, two high-volume periods where a lot of investors jumped on the Square bandwagon. How's it work? Based on the most recent swing, the green lines, the pullback in Square might stop at $38.79, which would represent a 38.2 retracement of the recent rally, or it could go to 35.64. That would be a 50% retracement, or it could fall all the way to $32.48. That's a 61.8% retracement. Those are all Fibonacci ratios, okay? Collins has a hard time believing that Square will repeal more than half of its run since May. So he expects Square will be able to find a strong floor of support at either the $35 or the $38 level. But that's still low from here. And if you look at the whole move since February, you'll find that's a 38.2% retracement. And that would take Square to just under 37. And that's very much in the ballpark. So let's just say it's going there. All right. Do you want to buy that now, 42? If it's going to 37? No. Now, Collins is absolutely not saying that Square's going to 35. For all we know, the stock actually made a bottom today and is part of a longer-term move higher. But if this bounce turns out to be short-lived and this stock gets pounded again, these are the levels Collins thinks you should watch. With that in mind, check out this more normal weekly chart of the action in Square. Collins points out that Square hasn't traded beneath its 13-week moving average, a medium-term measure of stock trajectory, all year. Recently, the stock caught fire and pulled further away from its moving average, which is currently at $35, right around that support level that Collins just gave us. So if he's right, Square has a floor somewhere in the mid-30s, which is not very reassuring, given the stock is at $42.55. Kind of a danger zone there. Again, Collins is not predicting that Square will trade down to those levels immediately. He's, he, he's simply saying that if it does go into a tailspin and that stocks that have this kind of, you know, this dead cat bounce, they can continue to fall. He wouldn't recommend trying to bottom fish until it sinks to the mid to high 30s. May sound very cautious, but a square can lose 16% of its value of a single downgrade? What well, might happen again? From a technical perspective, square, not a bargain. Okay? Boom. All right, so if calling a bottom in square is too risky, what kind of bottom does Collins like? All right, take a breather here because this is one tough chart I'm about to show you. Take a gander at the weekly chart of none other than the killer drug stock, Allergan. The fast-growing big pharma company with a stock that spent the past couple of years just getting slaughtered. We own this one for the charitable trust. It's been brutal. Here's a stock that's fallen from more than $300 two years ago to $172 today. I mean, needless to say. I mean, we're doing this like every other day here with this thing, right? I mean, there's not enough, there's not enough linoleum. Oh, I have spent a lot of time on the cheap linoleum floor drinking some really bad scotch because of Allergan. Anyway, I've often felt that like Wall Street is an irrational hatred for this thing. Allergan never seems to get credit for delivering good numbers. And it's just, it's disproportionately punished when every, every, everything goes wrong. The knife just came into my mind there. However, based on what he sees in the chart, Collins believes that the hatred may have gotten too excessive. Allergan could be due for a bounce. Why? Because in the last couple of months, the stock has come down hard, and after this kind of move, it has a tendency to bounce. See these two green circles in May and November? Look at this, okay? In both cases, Allergan is sold off hard to the point where the stock traded through the bottom of its Bollinger Bands, a tool that measures the level of volatility. Both times, the stock, which club members from ActionLearnersPlus.com know that I worry about every time it goes down, rebounded hard, even though it was still in a long-term downturn. Well, Allergan just broke down through the bottom of its Bollinger Bands again. So if the previous pattern holds, Collins expects 
Another 15% bounce. Can you imagine with this thing? On top of that, Allergan is very, very oversold. How do we look at that? Well, we look at the full stochastic oscillator, measures when the stock has come up or down too far, too fast. Right now, this indicator is an extreme oversold position. The last time Allergan got this oversold was in December of last year. So you can see, boom, all right? Proceeded to rally 20%. Put it all together, and Collins thinks this stock could be 35 up and 5 down. Man, that's a great risk reward. Oh, I, I was going to tell you, I, I have to agree with them, but maybe that's hope speaking. Here's the bottom line. Bottom fishing can be very dangerous. So before you pounce on a stock that's sold off hard, try to fathom the potential downside. The charts as interpreted by Tim Collins suggest that a stock like Allergan is simply a lot safer than a dinged momentum number like Square, where the downside is much harder to get your head around. And as much as I like both companies, right now I'm siding with Collins. Allergan's a buy. Square, not yet. John in New York. John. How are you, Jimmy? I am doing good. How about you? Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much to you and your family. You're great, and your staff is great. My staff's fantastic. What's up? Unbelievable. So, anyhow, I did a little shopping with that Frank and Sal, and I bought some fresh brisket and some Italian bread. Come on over. I, 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 I like that. I got to get the wife on the phone. I, she's busy right now. She's something at the vet. Something with the vet. I don't know. What's going on? Speaking of the family and the vet, I bought a dog and they named the dog Tranch. I like that. Because NVIDIA was hurting today. Maybe that's why she went to the vet, because of NVIDIA. Go it's, ahead. That's my, I, it used I to be named that. And, and today I bought some more. TBI, Pitney Bowes. Man, that dog can't hunt at all. Speaking of vets. Man, I don't know. We got to have that guy back as the CEO. That's one nasty stock. I, I, I can't tell you to buy it here. I can't tell you to buy it because it's got that 7.3% yield, and that is indeed outsized. It's a total red flag. Now we're going to Ken in my old home state of Pennsylvania. Ken! Hey, Jim. It's great to meet you by phone. I've been following you since the days of the street.com. Holy cow. Now you're talking about 20 yeah. years. Let me help. You- you're talking about 20 years. 20 well, years. I just want to thank you, too. Your willingness to share your expertise helped my daughter graduate from Temple this year with zero debt. There you so go. Been... My folks went to Temple, so I'm totally into that. What's going on? That's fantastic. Hey, let me ask you about USAT, USA Technologies. Uh, I started to buy the stock back in 2001 for $0.02 a share as a speculation play. And they're trading now right around eight eight fifty. They just accumulated, or excuse me, acquired Cantaloupe Systems. And I wanted to find out from you whether it's a future powerhouse takeover target or sell and take. Ken, we got to do work on this thing. This thing's right from Malvern, PA. That was the rich side. I was from the poor side. That was like a nice part of town. I was like, wow, can we ever move to Malvern, Mom and Dad? Like, are you kidding? But anyway, let me do some work in USA Technology because that's a payment processing company, and you know we like those. All right. Bottom fishing can be dangerous. And when it comes to the cases of Allergan, which right now seems like it has no bottom, no bottom, and Square, which seems like it has no top, no top, I think the former could be the safer bargain here, according to Collins on side my lobby. Now, much more made money, including my students with Palo Alto Networks. Company reported a miss earlier this year that sent shares careening lower. But could its report last week signal the company's turning? Then I got the CEO. Christmas spirit is no stranger to this miracle on 34th Street, but does Macy's have enough magic to get it out of trouble in this market? Or is the parade officially rained out? I'm eyeing the company's chances to redeem itself. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. 
does it take for a former market darling to get its groove back? That's the question we need to ask about these cybersecurity stocks, isn't it? I mean, for years, this group were higher, kind of just mindlessly. It was spirited by Palo Alto Networks, PNW, the company that pioneered the next generation firewall. But in late in 2015, the stock peaked. And for a long time afterwards, it just seemed to stagnate. In fact, even the huge Equifax data breach couldn't ignite a rally here. I mean, that's how out of favor these stocks have become. Yet last week, Palo Alto delivered a phenomenal quarter. A five-cent earnings beat off of a 69-cent basis, higher than expected revenue, up 27% year-over-year. That's pretty spectacular. Even better, management raised their top and bottom line forecasts for the full fiscal year. Looks like the Equifax fiasco really is causing companies to invest more heavily in data security, which translates into more business for Palo Alto, which is why the stock jumped from 142 to 149 the day after it reported. So could this be the beginning of a much longer upswing, maybe a new cycle? Let's take a closer look with Mark McLaughlin. He's the chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks. Find out more about the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. McLaughlin, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Always nice to talk with you. All right, Mark, before we get started again, I want to thank you. We visited West Point and uh, went through some of the executives who have done so much for others who have gone through West Point. And uh, I just want to thank you because uh, you were someone that, that we have to highlight as being a uh, great graduate and done great things since. Thanks, Jim. It's a privilege to serve, and I really appreciate everything you're doing with the vets. I loved watching you up there at West Point. Thanks for doing that. Oh, thank you. Okay, so let's get started. This was clearly a quarter where a lot of things came together. Some of it was the stuff that you apologized for right up top. You were disappointed in the previous quarter. But because of your platform, it looks like you were starting to get some very competitive wins. You mentioned a six, a seven-figure competitive win against Cisco in a virtualized data center deal. Cisco displacement standard security vendor. Then you talk about a Symantec displacement and a checkpoint displacement. These are very big deals. How come you're winning them? Well, you know, Jim, we've been winning at a very high rate for a very long time. We're one of the largest uh, security companies in the world and still growing much faster than the market itself and all, all the competition. You know, the reason for that is what we're bringing to the table is highly automated prevention in a real platform. That's super important these days because we're fighting a very automated adversary who's very sophisticated. You can't use legacy technologies. You can't smash together old technologies. You really have to take a new approach and start over, which is what we did a decade ago. And it's been paying off ever since. Well, I mean, when you when some when you win over a customer that's been using someone else and you use the platform, I mean, is that a, a land and expander? You literally rip out what they have and you put in your platform and, and everything's built on it. Well, most companies are going through digital transformation right now, and the flip side of digital transformation's fantastic productivity gains are the concerns with security, right? And you have to have both of those things. So what we do is get the opportunity to come into a company and say, on your journey in digital transformation to grow your productivity, we're going to make you as safe as possible from a security perspective and let us show you the difference between what you've been using for one, two, five, or ten years' time and what we do. We usually get the chance to do something for that company, and once we get in, we've shown a great uh, proclivity to grow over time and expand uh, throughout the company. And that's why you have thousands of customers, not just 100, you know, not just 100 or 200. You really have a very big roster. Well, we've got over 45,000 customers now. We've been adding anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 a quarter for a while. So the rate of adoption is very high, and that's on a global basis. Now, one thing I thought was interesting was that you started talking about, we know that the federal government had kind of had a pause. You know, and some people felt when you mentioned that as a problem, it was like, oh, give me a break. The federal government always spends. But it really is very clear that suddenly the federal government came back in the picture and they, and they chose Palo Alto. 
Well, you know, the federal sector has been a really good uh, customer base for us, not surprisingly given their mission and, and uh, you know, how we can help them fulfill that mission. You know, we have seen in the Fed space for a while some anxiety because there's been a lot of open seats in the administration. So spending decisions have been taking a while. But we're seeing a return to normalcy there, which is great for us and all the other companies. Well, I mean, you talk about the way to protect our life in the digital age. I mean, that made it sound like it's not just money. It's not just Bitcoin being paid off. You're talking about life or death, that that could be be in, uh, unfortunately, what's in store for us if we uh, let these state-sponsored actors keep having their way. Well, it's very important. Our mission statement as a company has been for a very long time to protect our way of life in a digital age. And that sounds very ambitious, and it is. But it's also very important because everything that we do in business and our personal lives is increasingly digital in nature. That's great. Drives a lot of productivity. But like I said, the flip side of that is all the security anxieties and concerns that come with digital technology. And we view it as our mission to make that as safe as possible for, for not only individuals, but companies as well. I know you have a broad panoply, but let's say I came to you and I said, uh, Mark, listen, I've used you for a long time. Um, I've been hacked and, and uh, it's ransomware. And they're telling me to send $100,000 worth of Bitcoin using that 800, 1-800-Bitcoin desk. What do you say to me if I come to you? Well, it depends on who you are. If it's you, Jim Cramer, <laughs> you probably need to pay him, unfortunately, right? You know, for companies, we would tell them to say, first thing is let's try to make sure that doesn't happen again by taking okay. a very uh, strong prevention methodology. Secondly, right. have a backup plan for all your data, right? So make sure uh, that your data doesn't just exist on one device. Put it in the cloud, back it up, uh, because, you know, that's ultimately what the economic trade-off is, right? right, is access back to the data. But you're still seeing ransomware, I mean, guys are getting through and particularly yeah. foreign actors. I understand that. I mean, I'm, I think in this country we have better disclosure, but they're using uh, blockchain. So it's uh, it's a f- way to be able to make it so you're not necessarily ripped off, but they are paying. I mean, other people are paying ransomware. Well, you know what? I mean, what's happening there is uh, they come in and basically freeze the data, right? So if you encrypt it, you can't use it, you can't read it, and it's, it's, it's prevalent. It's in companies, it's in hospital systems, and it's in an individual level where you can't even see your pictures anymore, right? So if you, if you let them get in, and that's where prevention becomes very, very important, and you haven't backed up your data uh, somewhere else, then you're really in a bind because that's the only way to access the information is actually pay them. And as I mentioned last time you and I spoke, it's a, that's a big business, unfortunately. Sure. Now, uh, one last thing. North Korea launched a missile today. We understand that we're trying to do uh, that. The government's trying to do some sort of cyber terrorism to them. Uh, I have to believe they're doing cyber terrorism to us. When you do the federal government, is this your spot? Are you finding people like North Korean state sponsored actors trying to get into into our files? Well, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, cyber uh, things going on out there. One of them for sure is nation states. And I think in any situation where uh, you have increasing tension on the kinetic side where, you know, ships are sailing and planes are flying, you're definitely going to see some cyber uh, tension as well in advance of that stuff. So you would be worried if you had an autonomous driving vehicle that it could be hacked? Yeah, I, I think so, right? Anything, uh, we call that the Internet of Things, right? And right. Uh, anything that's connected back to a network somewhere is basically just a computer, right? So it can be hacked just like a laptop can be hacked or a cell phone can be hacked. Yeah, well, I think there's I hate, a, a I lot of interesting things note, coming, But I don't want that 18-wheeler to be hacked that's driving next to me. Kind of. Yep, it's, things are changing. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, I mean, let's help stop it, okay? That's Mark McLaughlin, Palo Alto Network's Chairman CEO, who's doing his best to help stop all the terrible things we just talked about. Bad Money's back after the break.
It is time. It's time to light him up. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Clayton in California. Clayton. Booyah, Sam. How you doing? I am doing really well. How about you? All right. My stock is uh, on semiconductors. Ticker is ON. And I'm doing ON is right in that sweet spot of the Internet of Things. You know, I like the semis that are like that, and they're all for... They're all, like, capable of merging with each other at any given moment. John in Alabama. John. Hi, Jim, and a big booyah to you from beautiful Orange Beach, Alabama. Oh, Thanks for taking my call and for course. everything I've learned from you. Stock I'm calling about today is California Resources Corp, CRC. No, that is way too risky. That's a spin-off Occidental. I really don't want you to be in that one at all. I think it's up a lot, and you can take advantage of it and blow out of it. Samuel in Virginia. Samuel. Yes, uh, you're a good man, Mr. Kramer. So, uh, thanks. Happy Thanksgiving, Booyah, to you. Same to you and your family. And your family. How can I help you? Yes, Celgene. Uh, um, it dropped, and when is a good time to come back? I think into right it? now. I mean, I wish I could say under 100, but you know what? Let's not be greedy. This one is way too low versus the fundamentals. I'm a buyer of Celgene here. How about Sam in Texas? Sam. Hey, Jim. Uh, my name is Sam. Uh, I want to get insight on Southwestern Energy Stock, SWN. Uh, uh, Southwestern is just not a high-quality company anymore. They spend too much money. I don't really care for the natural gas companies. I'm going to say no to Southwest. Maybe get a point, but that's not my style. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Has Macy's gotten out of trouble, or at least out of Amazon's blast radius? Has the retail Death Star moved on to greener pastures? Oh, maybe the drugstores. Oh, those stocks looked okay today. Auto parts retailers. Did we maybe get too negative about the mall itself and retail, given the Gap, Abercrombie, Foot Locker, Children's Place, up another quick eight points today, and even GameStop reported sharply better than expected quarters, and those are mall-based stores. I think that's the setup for the beginning of the holiday rush that kicked off on Black Friday and continued on yesterday's Cyber Monday. Remember, there are two stages to redemption for Macy's, the company. The first is a recognition that the dividend seems too outsized versus the actual earnings, not the cash flow, but the earnings, which therefore need to be augmented by real estate sales, which they can do with alacrity. The second stage, enough debt has been paid down, including the surprising $400 million tender offer just last night for some higher coupon debt and enough weaker stores close that the cash flow going forward will be voluminous, which is how Macy's gets out of a jam and starts going up against some easier comparisons. Granted, the strength of Amazon makes me very queasy about recommending any retailer other than Walmart or Home Depot, the two larger chains that are performing relatively well in this environment, if not spectacular in the case of Home Depot. Ah, but there's a budding sense in the industry, and I talk to enough people that you know I've got some grounding here that Jeff Gannett, the new CEO of Macy's, may have gotten his arms around the styles needed to win for now. And meanwhile, he's cleaned up the stores for Christmas, so they look better than they have in years. Check them out. On top of that, he started a loyalty program, something Macy's badly needs, given its lack of attention to regular customers over the years. That's my judgment as a regular customer. The problem is that of the chains I follow, only Panera, 
the restaurant chain, and Sephora. These are both not investable because they're not public anymore. The, the Sephora is cosmetics, have really pulled off good loyalty programs. Even Starbucks loyalty program has stopped showing the kind of growth I want. That said, I think it's possible that Gannett can bring some shoppers back from Amazon. I noticed that VF Corp and PFH, PVH both hit new highs this week. Both. That's astonishing, given that the big discount retailers and department stores are all fighting for the business of these two behemoths. Maybe that's Macy's, perhaps the biggest stage for these two suppliers doing better than expected. We're going to get a clue tomorrow when PVH reports. I bet you it's good. Look, I know that Macy's numbers are supposed to be down for the year, which is another reason why the stock has fallen to where it sports a far out to size, out at uh, 6.8%. Yo, that's way too much. It's too big. And that's always a red flag given its distance from the norm of most companies. But here, too, the news could be good. You know, retailers that were supposed to miss badly this quarter, take a, like Foot Locker, instead missed by less than badly, and their stocks experienced gigantic short squeezes. <laughs> Macy's is more liquid, so a short squeeze is less likely. That said, if you take a possible dividend cut, worry off the table, because the debt paydown signals all as well for Black Friday and the weekend, despite reports of jamming registers, then you might have a stock that can continue to trend higher from here. In the end, we need Macy's to raise its earnings forecast and pay down even more debt if its stock's going to have a sustainable run back to 30. That may be too much to ask of a single executive like Mr. Gannett, but I wouldn't be surprised if he can't pull off something like it. Now's the time for Gannett to play offense. While Macy's omnichannel strategy will always be hobbled by the company's mall-based stores, where it's too difficult for them to do buy online, pick up in person in that much of a voluminous manner, well, because of the parking concerns. The merchandising in the stores themselves remain a heck of a lot more attractive than most retailers with always reasonable prices. So should you buy the stock of Macy's? I know it sounds crazy, but yeah, I think it's worth a shot. Stick with Kramer. Looking for value in the stock market while we traded all-time highs? Still consider the bank stocks. I know they were up today, but they're only at around 13 and 14 times earnings. That's cheap. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.